Holy Hour of Power. This is the Terry and Jesse show. Terry got a lot younger. If you if you notice, boy oh boy, he, I think he he drank from the fountain of youth. Uh, <laughs> there's Terry. Oh, he looks like Joe Gallagher. Yes, <laughs> most of you guys know who Joe Gallagher is. Uh, and we got Doctor Jared here. This is going to be an incredible topic because this is everything, as uh, as as they say in in. Uh, in, in the land of, of sports, I mean, this is the whole enchilada, the Holy Eucharist. We have Dr. Jared Stout. He's on with us on the Terry and Jesse show, but he's on here with Terry and Joe Gallagher. He just wrote a book. It's called How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. And it's interesting because me and Joe have been talking this morning after mass and during breakfast and talking all morning about the whole issue of unity the, both of us, as as lay Catholics, we just have this burning desire to unify the body of Christ to the best of our ability. And I said, well, you know what? We're going to pick Dr. Jared's brain because he wrote a book on this, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. And so, Doctor, welcome to the Terry and Jesse Show. Thanks so much for having me on. You, you've done a big service to the body of Christ with this book, and uh, you have... You have 12 chapters here. I want you to just give us a, just a foundation of, uh, of chapter one. Give us a synopsis of what you call nature and culture, soil for supernatural food. Explain that to the audience because you can you unpack that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first, the book is just structured around the statement that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. So the first section is on how the Eucharist is the source of the Christian life. And so I look at nature and culture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the life of the church, right? So this is really the opening. And the Eucharist is the perfect sacrifice. A sacrifice is an offering that makes something holy. And it's our way of giving what God has given us back to him as an act of love. And so God created the world. He put it in our hands. He gave us dominion and said, okay, here you go, you know, do your work. And so we take up wheat and we turn it into bread. We take grapes, we turn it into wine, but God goes even farther because he takes that bread and he, and he transforms it into his body. He takes that wine and transforms it into his blood. So the Eucharist really is the perfection of creation because we have, you know, the gifts that God has given us, then we put our effort into it through culture and make them into bread and wine. And then he makes them this supernatural, perfect, and even e eternal offering back to him. That's really, really well said, doctor. And by the way, thank you, uh, Jesse. It's an honor to be subbing for, uh, for Terry here. Doctor, this book, a uh, question for you. Why, why now? What drove you to write this book? Ah, did you see? I like that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, did you see society needed it? Did you just feel on your heart that you have a, a better than all knowledge of, uh, you know, the Eucharist or better than most and you want to share it? But what was the reasoning? What inspired you to write this book? I mean, it's over 300 pages, oh, uh, Baker's dozen chapters. There's a lot of content in this. Yeah. So my angle is actually through the lens of Catholic culture. I really feel like my whole life is dedicated to trying to rebuild the faith as a way of life. That's what culture means, a way of life. And so it was really in prayer, just thinking, okay, what does it really mean to live the Christian life in the world right now? 
what do, what do we really need to bring into the world? And the answer was just resounding. We need the Eucharist. The Eucharist literally is the answer to the problems in our life, to the problems in our society. And this is the center from which we need to rebuild everything else. Wow. Wow. Let me, let me share what the, the tan release it's uh, it's, it's, it's short, it's pithy, but it says it all. Uh, How the Eucharist can save civilization. Dr. Jared Stott. It says the greatest civilizations have, have all sought immortality. From inventions to massive monuments, these societies have tried to produce something that would define them and last forever. But only one is eternal, God himself. Christ's greatest gift, his divine flesh and blood in the Eucharist, is the eternal defining legacy of Christendom, the flower of Western civilization. The Eucharist is not just a doctrine, it is a reality to be lived, and it must shape our entire lives and culture. Indeed, from hospitals to the great cathedrals, this gift defined Western civilization and allowed it to reach its highest heights. Yet now, our Western civilization verges on complete collapse because we lack this supernatural framework. We've, we have reverted, reverted to being barbarians, <laughs> devoid of a noble vision of human life and the personal cultivation of virtue. But there's a remedy, a return to a Eucharistic-centered life. What once took us what once took us to our summit can once again be our source for a flourishing civilization. The Blessed Sacrament has more power than any medicine to heal the body and soul, more strength than any army to defeat our foes, and more grace to transform our civilization by first transforming us. Only the Holy Eucharist, which built the, the great culture of Christendom, can both renew and save our secular culture by infusing it with beauty, festivity, community and charity let me share something about you doctor you can add something here <laughs> you got me Jared fired Stout. up after reading that i'm like That's wow I'm, i need I'm to read this up, book boy. oh and yeah no, i'm about to levitate right now <laughs> hold me down i'm going to put some ankle weights on <laughs> dr jerry Stott's a teacher writer and speaker committed to helping others enter to the living and vibrant tradition of catholic culture he serves as associate superintendent for mission and formation at the archdiocese of denver and visiting associate professor at the Augustine Institute. He and his wife, Anne, have six children. He's a Benedictine oblate. He's the author of The Primacy of God, Restoring hum Humanity, and The Beer Option. Hey, Dr. Jared, I was over in your diocese a few weeks ago. I spoke at the Legatus. Uh, I met Dr. Tim Gray, an old friend of mine, Dr. Robert Spitzer was there, and then your great bishop, uh, Bishop uh, Archbishop Aquila, he was there as well. It was, uh, it was a great time was had by all. But uh, it, it, tell us, this is so important, I think, because you're scratching the church where the church is itching. Uh, and so talk about feeding God's holy people, the celebration in the Old Testament. I think you touched on it. Talk about the incarnation, which is the abiding center of all things in relation to the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. Well, if we're going to save civilization, right, we, we really need to accept and receive the gifts that God is giving us the Eucharist being the, the primary one. And so culture, a way of life really is a particular people coming together in a particular place and they have common practices together and they're shaped by a common vision of life. So that's really what these first four chapters are built around. And so chapter two on Israel, God's holy people, um, is really looking at how 
God wants to form us into his own people and that he is teaching us how to worship him. And so we have the sacrifices of the Old Testament foreshadowing that and directly foreshadowing the Eucharist. But then in chapter three, we look at the incarnation that that wasn't good enough. He had to come to us himself, you know, not just kind of teaching us from the outside, but coming from within um, and not just forming a holy people, but really constituting his own body on earth. So the incarnation, right, is, of course, the son of God taking flesh, but that continues to happen. The incarnation is not over with. We are drawn into the incarnation through our baptism because we are reborn as members of the body of Christ. Um, and then he feeds us and nourishes us with his own flesh, which, you know, you can think of as this kind of new birth, right, in baptism. But then the Eucharist as being more marital because he's giving his body to us and he wants us to give ourselves completely back to him. And what do we have? Communion to be one, right? The two shall be one. Um, and that's really the goal um, of forming this people um, around the common practice that we have as Christians, and that is the Mass. Jesus said, do this in memory of me. And, you know, the church has screwed up a lot of things through the centuries, but that has been the main consistent thing, is that we have celebrated the Mass faithfully through the centuries in memory of our Lord. Doctor, to uh, that's beautifully, beautifully put, and you know, pushing that a little bit, and you know, this common, it, it's a common practice, and as Jesse says, the a red meat answer. Uh, what do you uh, to dive even deeper? What does it mean? What does it look like in your own words when myself, Jesse, anybody else attending the same mass, when we all receive the same infinite and eternal God together? Can you speak more on that community, on that unity, what it does on a supernatural level uh, uh, for, for us and each other? Yeah. And when you think about society, right, you know, we're all chasing after material finite goods. There's only so much gold in the world. There's only so much food. And you see people trying to hoard it. And they want to keep it for themselves. Uh, but God's infinite. So we go to mass and we're partaking of this supernatural food and I can go there every day and I'm not taking anything away from anybody else. And actually, the more that I try to give from what I've received, the more I get. So it's like the exact opposite. Rather than hoarding things and taking things away from other people, uh, the Eucharist truly is the common good that we share with other people. We're all aiming for that good. We can all share in it completely without dividing it. And that means that we are more united the more that we are all coming together to receive the Eucharist. Absolutely. The truth is so is so good in and of itself that by its very nature, it deserves to be shared. And everybody has a right to hear it, Jesse. I love that there's this one verse in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Hey, uh, we're going to a hard break. I'm here with Dr. Jared, we're talking about the source and summit of our faith, the Holy Eucharist. Jesus himself here on planet Earth. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Stick around. Don't change the dial. We're back to Terry and Jesse show. We had a young Terry Barber here sitting to my left. <laughs> he was saying, that doesn't look like Terry. 
Got Joe Gallagher here, my sidekick, uh, replacing Terry today, stepping in for the big guy. Uh, Blessed to be on, Jesse. Blessed to be on. We got Dr. Jared here. He came out with an, just the title says it all. I mean, this is it. How the Eucharist can save civilization. That says everything. So, Doctor, tell us a little bit about Chapter Four. Give us a synopsis uh, where it says a Eucharistic Church, Christ's body in the world. Give us a quick teaser. Yeah, this is really about how the Church has been living the Eucharist. And we can look in the early Church, you know, facing the lions, like and all the persecution of the Roman Empire. I mean, the Eucharist gave the early Church strength to go out in the world, um, and. You know, after that, you know, there really was a big fight, you know, over theology. And sometimes we think, oh, theology, that's just for eggheads. But, you know, it really does matter. What is the Eucharist? And the church's belief has developed in its theology of how we articulate it. So I look at even the term like transubstantiation. People say, well, really? What? Trans what? You know, how does that make sense? Why do I care about that? But we look at the early church fathers and they were already teaching that reality. Justin Martyr in the second century already says, this is not ordinary bread and wine, but it becomes the body and blood of Christ. That's transubstantiation. Uh, We truly believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. The church has always taught that consistently from the beginning. But I look at controversies, not only in the early church, but the Middle Ages, and then, of course, the Protestant Reformation, and how the church has really fight for that truth. But then I also then look at Eucharistic saints, how the saints have told us and taught us as well in their lives what it means to live a Eucharistic life, that they've really opened themselves up completely to the grace of the Eucharist and have been transformed by it. Absolutely. And obviously one of those things you have in order to be better predisposed or open to receiving those graces, there's a certain practice that has to be in place in one's life. And that is uh, that's. Fasting and confession. That's chapter eight, part two of the book. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that integrates with preparing for reception of Holy Communion? Yeah, and that really hits at a key question. If the Eucharist is what we believe it to be, the body and blood of Christ, that we have the one true God coming into our bodies and souls every single Sunday, why aren't our lives more transformed? Why don't we see a bigger impact? Why don't we see civilization being transformed uh, even right now? And part of the reason is, is that we keep up a lot of obstacles that one, we're not going to confession regularly so that we're not able to receive the graces that Jesus wants to give us in the Eucharist. If you receive communion regularly, then you need to go to confession regularly. Um, And when we think about all the preparation that we make for certain things in our lives, right? You know, we we go to school for, you know, more than a decade, you know, to get ready for our career. Um, Even like marriage prep, right? You know, usually it's it's about a year, nine months to a year. How much preparation do we put in for receiving the Eucharist? Do we put any preparation in at all? What do we do afterwards? Do we just rush out of church and kind of leave the grace behind? So we really need to be much more intentional about receiving the Eucharist and to really prepare ourselves to clear away all the obstacles, the sins, the attachments. You know, we are much more focused on other things than on what Jesus wants to give us. So we really need to open ourselves up to the transformation that is right there in the Eucharist. Dr. Jared, there's two chapters here that I think 
they're, they're inseparable. When I'm looking at chapter six, it says, I mean, five and six, the mass, eternity enters time. And then chapter six, praying the mass, union with Christ's sacrifice, because mm-hmm. I guess it is a sacrifice of Christ that makes itself present. So I think those two chapters go together. Tell us, explain that in, 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 in layman's terms, how the Mass is eternity entering time, and explain in blue-collar language the way the Mass is union with Christ's sacrifice. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, I, I don't know who sung the song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? And I tell young people when I talk to them and children, I say, you know what? When you go to Mass, that song becomes real. You were there right next to Mary, St. John, St. Mary Magdalene. So talk about those two chapters, because that's that's the heart and soul of what makes our worship separate from Protestants. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times we tend to think of, you know, going to Mass, it's it's what we do, right? You know, we, we come here and it's our prayers, and we, we, you know, we make a lot of gestures and we say responses. But this is really the prayer of Christ. The Mass is the prayer of Christ, and He enables us to worship the Father in spirit and truth. So the Mass is eternity breaking into time, that we encounter and receive the Most Holy Trinity and the Mass. It is by far the most powerful reality in the universe. It makes nuclear energy look like nothing, right? I mean, because here is the one true God, you know, right there uh, at the Mass. Um, And participation in the mass once again it's it's not what we are doing but it's how we are entering into what christ is doing so are you participating in mass well are you uniting yourself to the cross are you uniting yourself to the offering that jesus is making to the father because this is an offering that is infinite in its worth and it sanctifies us we become part of that offering everything that we do all of our relationships our work it's all drawn into that offering and is transformed and so through this eternity entering into time right this is the 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 opening the doorway for the whole world to be transformed here's the way i explain it to teenagers and it makes sense to them i remember there was a series that came out. And my kids told me, dad, you got to sit down and watch the flash with us. He's the fastest, you know, I said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, I'll sit down and watch it with you. The flash can run around planet earth 16 times in one second. And so I, I, so the room was full of my, you know, my kids, my kids had their friends there and cousins and other family members. So I, I, I said, mm, this is a teaching moment. I said, you know what? Flash is pretty impressive. He runs around the world 16 times in one second, but God, is faster than the flash, much faster. God, because he lives outside of time, he takes the sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary and he brings it to St. You know, Augustine Church, St. Joseph's Church, St. Mary Magdalene Church. He, he, so he goes back and he brings it. He's faster than the flash. It was funny, but it was a room full of teenagers when I said that years ago. And it made sense to them. They're saying, really, Mr. Romero, that's what happens? I said, yeah, Calvary becomes present because God, who lives outside of time, brings that event into your parish. That's why it's only fitting to be reverent and and pious and silent. You're next to Mary, St. John the Apostle, St. Mary Magdalene. So how would you act if you were at Calvary? Because you are there. You're there. 
He remember he's faster than the flash. That could, my kids remind me now, now that they're young adults, they say, dad, we never forgot that flash story. <laughs> when we go to mass, we say, wow, God's so fast. He, he brings the, the sacrifice of Calvary into the present moment. So that's awesome. Uh, how's that as a pedagogical tool, doctor? Great. Well, me. that'll stick. Like you said, stuck with your kids. So yeah, I'm going to yeah, remember it that worked one. for them. They remember to say comments, Joe. No. Yeah. Do, uh, Dr. Jared, I do it. I do have a question, you know, as you've been talking about the Eucharist, it, it truly is Jesus Christ. It's, it is God. It, this eternal being, and as St. Augustine will say, has said, who can run from you, Lord? It's, we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We see it from the writings of the saints. There is no escaping God because all subsists within God. He holds all together. Can you just share, opine, talk about in your experiences, you know, looking at the ability to receive the eternal Christ, the eternal God as a finite creature to be able to consume something that is limitless. Yeah. And this gets into chapter seven on making a good communion. So I think that's crucial. It goes back to that question. Why aren't we receiving more of the, of the grace? And it reminds me of a book my kids read preparing for first communion, the King of the golden city. Um, and the book gives the image. It was written by a, a teaching nun, right? So she, she was trying to teach the kids for first communion. Your, your soul is like a house and you have a big guest coming to visit you. It's the King. Is your house swept? You know, are you sitting down to look your guest face to face to have a conversation or is the guest coming and you're just busy in the house doing other things? Maybe your house is messy. He doesn't even have a place to sit down. Your back's to him. I, that's that's an image that has stuck with me. It's not the flash, mm. but I, I think <laughs> it's a helpful one no, because absolutely. here we are receiving the son of God, right? So we think, okay, the bread becomes Christ's body. And along with his body through concomitants, that's another great theological word, we receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity, the, the whole Christ. But the divinity of Christ can't be separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. So by receiving the body of Christ, we're receiving the triune God. But what's our disposition? Are we paying attention? Are we really mm. opening our hearts to that grace? Are we really speaking to Jesus? Uh, are we focusing all of our attention on him? Are we cleaning our house and preparing and putting out the red carpet, you know, and saying, come in, sit down, let's talk. I want to give myself to you completely. Or are we just kind of taking it for granted and, and not paying much attention to that moment? You know, it's uh, a lot of Catholics, especially men, we have to watch that we don't become just intellectual eggheads. And you got a chapter, it's called Divine Intimacy, Communion and Adoration, uh, and that's that's the very real danger for many men is just to become intellectual wonks and not have that divine intimacy with Christ or like Protestants say, a personal relationship with Jesus. Speak to that. Yeah, one of the things that I, I really try to emphasize in this chapter, and it goes back to not taking the Eucharist for granted, is make a choice. You know, in the Middle Ages, they used to receive communion three times a year. Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. And that was a big deal. You would go to confession beforehand. You would really prepare yourself. And now we're in such a habit of going every single Sunday that we can simply take that gift for granted. So yeah, the Eucharist is not just a belief. It's a reality to be lived. So how are you showing that the Eucharist is the center of your life? 
How are you dressing when you go to mass? How much time are you taking to prepare? And there's some beautiful prayers that I include in the back of the book that help us to make a conscious choice to receive the Eucharist. It's not just passive. We're not just going through the motions, but like, Lord, I want to receive you today. Come into my soul. Make your home there. Help me to welcome you. Heal my soul. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your grace, right? I mean, these are the kinds of prayers that we need so that this becomes not just the head, as you're saying, Jesse, but also the heart. And adoration, I think, is a disposition that can help us to continue the fruits of communion. So after receiving the Eucharist on Sunday, we're going back to this communion. We're fostering it. I mean, can you imagine, you know, your relationship with your wife if you didn't talk yeah. to her every single day? Right. You know, you say, oh, well, Dr. I'll talk Jerry, to you we're going Sunday. to hard break. We're going to hard break. <laughs> okay. Hey, hold that thought. Absolutely. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse show. Get the book, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization, 10 books. We'll be right back. How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. Pick that book up, Tan Publications, Tan.com. The book is How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization uh, by Dr. Jared Strott. We should send uh, this book to all the Catholics in the White House, every governor's mansion, every Catholic in the Senate, every Catholic in Congress. Uh, maybe they can bump up their game, as, as, you, as we say in football. Uh, Joe, you got a question for the good doctor? Yeah. Um, and this ties into, uh, cause you know, we're, we're diving into part three, we're getting to that, uh, that part of the interview, but just to, uh, a recap, a segue, you know, as you guys are talking about before, it's, you can't be so eggheaded. Of course, yes, it is, it is fun to, you know, dive into the intellectual aspect, but you get to heaven by saying the rosary. Some of the greatest saints mm. are always the ones that have these amazing works. They're not always writing a summa theologica, or they don't have the confessions. And then this crazy uh, meditation on eternity at the end of it, as we see in Augustine, and of course, Asuma being Aquinas. And you you said it so wonderfully, doctor, when you're talking about habits. When you have something in your life daily or weekly, especially since you're a child, it's very easy for that to be taken for granted. And especially with how you receive Holy Communion, whether it be in the hand as you eat like your regular chip versus if you receive something and you eat it unlike any other way, or any other food that you eat it. And so you, you use your hands to eat a hot dog, but a priest places the host on your tongue. Mm. There are practices and ways to make sure that the Eucharist is the number one thing in our lives. And that's exactly what you do to open up part three as you talk about living a Eucharistic life, the heart of Catholic culture. Can you speak to that chapter? And, and do you give guidelines what, how people can live a, a Catholic life, a Eucharistic life with Jesus body, soul, blood, divinity, all in one in the middle of their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I open up that chapter with a really wonderful quote from John Sr. What is Christian culture? It is the mass. You know, that's what mm. Christian culture is. Wow. And so it, it is meant to be the center of our lives. And so Sunday is the most important day. And we kind of build our lives around that central day. Um, and we're drawn into the, the cycle of the, of the liturgical season. But I just think concretely, it's how we spend our time. Do you spend your time in a way that the Eucharist is at the center of that? 
is the Eucharist at the center of your relationships? Do they all kind of point back to that and flow from that? Does the Eucharist inform your work, right? That, that you see that you encounter the Lord on Sunday, and then that shapes how you're going to work on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, that it's an extension of that communion that you have with Christ. So really, I think in terms of building a culture, it is a way of life that flows from the Mass, and it, it is instantiated in our family life and our friendships that we can really build up even through the parish. Because I think part of the problem with Catholic culture is that we we go into mass like consumers, we receive, and then we leave. You know, there's an, there's an ancient practice called the agape meal, very ancient. And we, we think we even see it in Paul's um, letter, first letter to the Corinthians, that there was a meal surrounding the mass. And, you know, coffee and donuts is actually probably like a little remnant of that practice that, you know, <laughs> you receive the Eucharist together, but then actually breaking bread and a common meal continues our communion and our, our fellowship. So that the parish. Doctor, can... was this was this after the liturgy or before the liturgy, according to history, the agape meal? Was it before or after the, litur- the sacred liturgy? Well, Mass. it looks like originally. Uh, it may like the Eucharist may have been embedded within a meal, kind of like the Passover. Okay, um, but that it was very quickly separated. Even already in the first century, uh, it was separated because we have a letter. It's like from the year 106. Pliny the Younger is writing to the Emperor Trajan, <laughs> and he says that the Christians gathered together to sing hymns to Jesus as to a god before the sun would arise, right? Because all the Christians were facing east and the rising sun coming up was a symbol of the resurrection. But then Pliny says, then they gathered together later in the day in their homes for a common meal. So Mm. that gives us some evidence that already around the year 100, the two things were separated, like the Eucharistic celebration very early in the morning, even as the sun was rising, and then a, a community meal later in the day. I think we should go back to that. I think that is a great way to begin building a a Christian culture that's very Eucharistic because we have the sacred breaking of the bread um, with the sacrifice of the mass. But then we have that, I think, with each other. Are we building a life together as Catholics or are we giving into individualism? Mm, I like that. Good good stuff. Hey, by the way, uh, this is the book you want to get, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization, 10books.com, 10books.com. Dr. Jared Smith, uh, you've done a great service to the body of Christ. Talk to us about keeping Eucharistic time, uh, shaping the rhythm of life. I'm I'm guessing you're going to say that our life needs to be built around the Sunday liturgy, not the other way around. Don't build the Sunday liturgy around your life. Am, am I tracking in the right direction? Yeah, that's right. And really, I say every day, every week, and every year should be built around the Eucharist. So even each day, you need to be enhancing your communion with God. That is, you know, just taking time to be with Him, to allow Him, right, to shape your life and and to really live from that communion with Him. And if you can't make it to daily Mass, then I highly recommend um, making the prayer of spiritual communion every single day. Um, and then each week, yeah, Sunday is the center of the week. It's the most important day of the week. And that day needs to be different from every other day. It's not just giving God one hour. We give him that day. And so it's not that we have to be in church all day, 
but that we really are taking time for leisure and community and that we're doing things that refresh us. I mean, that's what recreation is meant to be, recreation. And so we're hmm. thanking God that day. Um, and we're really doing things that are more important than all the busyness of the week. And then we're shaping the year that we're really getting into the liturgical seasons and the feast days um, and, and allowing our entire lives to be built around the sacred liturgy. Yeah, I think that as yet individually, the principle of subsidiarity, if, if one family's doing it and then the Johnsons across the street and then the Doe's next door, eventually you have a culture forming. You have, and then eventually you have an entire world making space for Jesus, which of course yeah. is chapter 11 for your book. Is, is that really where you start to go with the, with, with your thoughts that once, you know, society as a whole comes into the picture and they're all making space for our Lord, we're going to see him everywhere. Yeah, it really does have to begin with each one of us being tabernacles. So this making space for Jesus is looking at the church as a symbol of what we are meant to be and what we are meant to do with the entire world, right? That the Garden of Eden was a kind of temple uh, within God's creation. And our task that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth is to make the world a place where he is honored, that we're making the whole entire world a sanctuary for God. And, and I think that's exactly what the book of Genesis tells us to do, because when you look at the words that are used when Adam is placed in the garden to till and keep it, it's the same words in Hebrew that are used for the of priests to keep and, and to protect the temple. And so the, we should be looking at the entire world as a temple for God. He made it. Why did he make it? To give him glory, right? So we go to church, which is like this oasis in the world. And we receive the Lord into our own bodies. We are made into tabernacles. We take that presence out into the world to sanctify the world. Blessed be God. Good stuff. You're listening to Dr. Jerry Stout. He's uh, just came out with a post called How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization, put out by 10 books. You can pick it up at 10books.com. And boy, oh boy, is this book timely? You know, me and Joe were talking this morning about how do we save the West? How do we save our country? How do we save the church? We we started uh, talking about these macro topics, and the answer is Jesus. And the answer is he's here in the Eucharist. And uh, as, as more and more people come to realize this, that's what's going to be. That's what's going to transform the world. Christ and Christ alone, not politics, not uh, you know the Weather Channel, not uh, the World Economic Forum, not the ecologists. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. So, Doctor, you got another chapter that says fostering Eucharistic encounters, honoring Christ's body in the world. Can you unpack that chapter for us? Some of the highlights. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we are made into the body of Christ through the Eucharist. And so where do we learn to find Jesus? Well, yeah, at the Mass, for sure. But Jesus has also said that we can find his presence in the poor. So our communion with Jesus in the Eucharist should lead us to the poor to really bring Jesus' love to them. And that actually was one of the problems with the community in Corinth when Paul was writing to them. He said, you know, you're here at this meal, this Eucharistic meal, and you're thinking about yourselves and you're filling up yourself and you're not even paying attention to the person right in front of you who's hungry. And he says, you're eating condemnation on yourself because you're not discerning mm. the body. And once again, there's two ways of discerning the body. 
in the Eucharistic species, you know, that Jesus presence under the appearance of bread and wine, and then his presence under the appearance of the poor. And so the Eucharist should make us see others more clearly. Um, it also should lead us to give of ourselves more. And so there is this kind of marital dimension to the Eucharist, as I mentioned before, that should strengthen our marriage and our family as the domestic church, but it should also lead us just to be more other focused. I mean, how could you be a kind of autonomous individual after receiving the Eucharist? You're not only in communion with Christ, you're in communion with the rest of the members of the body. And so you should be making of yourself a gift, just as Jesus is giving himself to you as a gift in the Eucharist. Yeah, that's beautifully put, Doctor. That's, that's the biggest challenge of all right there. You, you just said it. That's wow. the essence of Christianity is the gift of self, you know. Uh, tall order. Yes, it's a very tall order. You know, one, my, my last question uh, for this segment for you, Doctor, you were talking about a spiritual communion. Um, can you can you wax a little bit more about the spiritual communion as we uh, wrap up here? We only have about 20 seconds. Maybe you should wait. Yeah, we'll wait till the next segment. Uh, so hold that thought. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse show. We got a uh, a young version of Terry Barber. That's probably how you looked 40 years ago. <laughs> Joe Gallagher. <laughs> I'm Jesse Romero. We got Dr. Jared. We're talking about his incredible book, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. Stick around. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Terry and Jesse show. To join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Now, here's Terry and Jesse. Yeah, because we have the advantage of the Holy Eucharist as Catholics, we're too blessed to be stressed, too anointed to be disappointed. And if hope was money, we'd all be billionaires. We've got Dr. Jared here, his book, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. Pick it up, 10books.com, 10books.com. We got one last segment. We want to pick your brain before it's over. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry about that. Before uh, we had to run to break, Doctor, real quick, could you just speak to... Um... Speak to a spiritual communion. What exactly is that? Yeah, that we can actually receive the graces of the Eucharist by desire and by prayer. That, you know, it's certainly not the same as actually receiving the Eucharist sacramentally, but through our prayer, we can ask the Lord to give us a deeper communion with him each day. And he can give us those graces through a spiritual communion. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It's amazing. I mean, yeah, that's how... God will give what we ask. You know, should we have enough faith and should we have enough hope? And uh, yeah, what a beautiful practice it is to be able to uh, you know ask our Lord for that spiritual communion for those days when we cannot make it to Mass. Absolutely. That's right. Jesse. Doctor, you, your last chapter is called The Heart of the World, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. Take your time and give us, give us that metaphysical answer. Give us that natural answer what Catholics need to take away, because this is exactly where we're at right now. We're in the midst of a culture war. We've seen, uh, you know, the woke culture, which has rejected Western civilization, which was given to us by Christ through the Catholic Church. And we see we see a collapse in Western civilization. So that chapter, give us some bullets that that you can that we can put in our in our lunch pail in our in our toolbox in our war bag so we can be participants and we can be these ambassadors for christ to save the civilization through the holy eucharist 
Yeah. You know, some people ask me, you know, is this unrealistic? Is this overly pious to say that the Eucharist can save civilization? It's done it before, right? You know, when things collapsed in the West, when the Roman Empire fell apart, the church built back up around the Eucharist. So yes, this is realistic. And how does it begin? The Lord changes me through my communion. And from that, he begins to change my relationship. So from me to my family, to my work. How about my parish? Once again, can we really build up community in our parish? Okay. If we get enough Catholics together, think how many people are in your parish. If you had 3,000 people rowing the same direction, working towards the same goals, what could you do? Could you build a Eucharist-centered school? Could you build a Eucharist-centered medical community? I mean, we did that in Denver with the Bella Clinic, which has the Eucharist right there inside the clinic. What else could you do? Could you, you know, maybe start like a local political organization to just sort of change the way that you do business in your local community and the way that you make decisions to make it more human centered, more people centered and not just, you know, bottom line centered. There's a lot that we can do. And and this is not a short term project. So that's where some people say, what, well, the Eucharist is just going to come in and just change everything overnight. Well, I'm not going to put it past God for one, but Mm. two, God thinks differently than we do. He doesn't even necessarily want to save civilization. He wants to save us. And if he does that, well, then we might save civilization because he has saved us. That's how this works. He has given us a mission in the world. Ite misa est, at the end of every mass, go, you're being sent. And he wants us to do things. But his goal is not to save civilization. His goal is to get us to heaven. But if we are faithful Christians, faithful Catholics, if we are truly animated by the Eucharist, we're going to make an impact in the world. And we can, over time, build a more human civilization and a more Christ-focused civilization because we are missing the center right now. And just look around. We see what is happening. And so what's the answer? If if the Eucharist can't save civilization, nothing can, right? I mean, this is it. This is the spiritual power that is needed to turn things around and start getting us going in the right direction. Dr. Jared, you mentioned that it would strengthen our relationships. And immediately my mind went to scripture when our Lord was was talking about, you know, if you have, if you bring your sacrifice to the altar, go first and make reconciliation with your brother. What that says, if we if that were if that were to be a mirroring of the Eucharist, and when we receive the Holy Eucharist, it we won't allow it to do what it can do. We won't allow God to do what God can do if we don't make sure that our relationships have the best potential to being rectified. In the case of somebody, let's say a brother having a, a, an issue with another brother, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I would say that reality is communion. Right. God himself is a communion of persons. And why did he make human beings and angels for that matter? Because he wants us to have communion with him. And that's even why he gave us freedom, because he wants us freely to enter into communion with him. If we are living in that kind of communion with him, that should strengthen the communion we have with one another. It should bring peace. It should bring reconciliation. It should bring healing. And we should be agents of that for others if we are communicants. Jesse. Doctor, here's a, here's a question that's front and center in the church today. 
Every Orthodox Catholic, and that's somebody who just holds to the teachings of the church, both East and West, believes that Christ is truly present in body, blood, soul, and divinity. And yet, it, it even looks like if the devil has, has worked his way into these discussions. And I, I say this because I know early on in history, uh, you know, some of the history books that I've read, uh, assigned reading at Steubenville, I remember, uh, there was these debates amongst the East and West over the liturgy. You know, the Greeks would say, we hold to the New Testament Koine language Greek and our divine liturgies go back. You know, they're more ancient than the Latin liturgy. So there was this kind of like back and forth, this internecine squabble between Eastern and Western Catholics over the liturgy. In fact, uh, there was even uh, during during the Crusades, I forget, I think it was the Crusaders went into some uh, Eastern Catholic churches or Orthodox and basically decimated the the the, the temple and the, the tabernacle. And obviously, that's one of the reasons why we had the East-West schism. And then now, more currently, we, we, we still have some of that going on today. And what I'm asking you is, how do we how do we uh, bring people back into a sound way of thinking, temper people's passions and appetites, uh, and have them, you know, look at each other civilly? Because oftentimes you even see today a debate about, well, I go to the ordinary form of the Mass, and you go to the extraordinary form, and you have these internecine squabbles. It's almost like if somebody's saying, we receive more of the Eucharist than you do. Uh and of course, we know that's metaphysically impossible. That's a, that's ridiculous. So, how can the Eucharist pacify or ameliorate these internecine squabbles that we see today in the West, in the Latin Rite Church, with the two with the two forms yeah. of the Mass? It's a very difficult question, um, in part because, you know, the, the power of the liturgy is that it is something that is given to us by the church. It's not something that we create. Ratzinger talks about this in the spirit of the liturgy. But starting the 1960s, there was a sense that we could take up the liturgy and reshape it according to our own sensibilities. And so, you know, you might go to a particular city in the United States and you would see the Latin mass, the Byzantine liturgy that you're referencing. You might see a very reverent and devout, uh, you know, uh, Novus Ordo mass. You might see something akin to a clown mass still. You know, there were pictures and videos coming out of particular churches in the city of Chicago where, yes, know, where they had are. big bubbles and blessings with a guitar. And this is liturgical chaos. And so we do have to be patient with one another because we're in a position we shouldn't have to be in. Right. The liturgy should not be like a smorgasbord, like, well, I prefer this and you prefer that. And but so there's a sense in which we have to recognize, okay, the liturgy is ultimately the ultimately the prayer of Christ. And I try to tell people, you know, because I think we need to be very deeply rooted in the church's tradition in whatever form that is, whether it's the Latin mass, Byzantine liturgy, which I really love, um, or the new mass, whatever it is, we need to be deeply rooted in the church's tradition, not projecting our own desires and views onto, onto the liturgy. Uh, but whichever form we are celebrating, we have to look at it as the prayer of Christ that we are entering into. And this is something that should bring greater unity, not division. Paul says to, to the Corinthians, I'll go back to it because I think it's such a Eucharistic letter, his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, I hear that there are factions among you. 
Mm. And I almost believe it because there must be factions among you that the good may prevail. This is a trial for us, you know, and mm. we, we have to avoid the temptation of judging one another, of giving into division. And so I tell people that, you know, no matter what my personal views are, um, I receive whatever the church gives to me. Now, not necessarily what, you know, the clown mess people give to me, but what the church herself like officially <laughs> gives to me, then I will accept that and receive that. Uh, because my prayer, my liturgical prayer is my being drawn into the body of Christ. I like it, Joe. No, I absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, one question for you, doctor is you just wrote this book, you know, as we're starting to close out, what else are you working on? Do you have anything coming up? Just rolling out the red carpet, really? Yeah. So my my next book um, is on Catholic education. I edited a book called Renewing Catholic Schools. And so um, I'm fo- writing a follow-up to that, which is going to really unpack the, the church's tradition. So that'll be coming out next year. Um, and also there's an update to my bio. So I am no longer working in Catholic school administration. I'm now the director of content for Exodus 90. So uh, if you want to follow my work, yeah, you wow. can check out that Exodus 90 and, and yeah, and get into some of our exercises. We're really focusing on a year round program based on the liturgical year itself to continue growing. I mean, our, our anchor is those 90 days of asceticism, which is really intense. Yeah. But right now I'm writing an exercise for Easter that even incorporates celebration and just forming a balanced plan of life. So that's uh, those are some of the things I'm working on right now. Exodus 365. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the, that's the website where people can take a look at your writings, right? Exodus365.com. Uh, no, it's exodus90.com. And so, yeah, it, the 365 was a metaphor for just trying okay, to provide it, this it. year round. But, you know, exodus90.com. You can also follow me at buildingcatholicculture.com. That's my personal blog. Dr. Jared, thanks for coming on the Terry and Jesse show. And I want to thank Joe Gallagher for, for sitting in uh, shotgun here. Uh, thanks for having me. You can get the book, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization, tanbooks.com, tanbooks.com. Dr. Jarrett, God bless you and your family. Keep up the good work. We'll have you on again and again and again. Keep the faith, my brother. Keep fighting the good fight. You're listening to the Terry and Jesse Show. Remember, just want to remind you, Catholics, this is a time of Lent. Live in a state of grace. Don't live in a state of mortal sin. Be holy or die trying. And flee, as St. Peter says, flee this corrupt generation. God bless you. Keep the faith. Keep the faith.